0: Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Kate Mornment on aggressive pets in vet clinics. Dr. Mornment is an applied animal behaviorist and consultant with a PhD in canine behavior. She also has a Bachelor of Science with First Class Honours in Zoology, Animal Behaviour, which she completed at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Victoria. She consults to pet owners and those working professionally with animals, is a media spokesperson, educator and expert witness. Kate is a member of the Association of Pet Dog Trainers in Australia, the International Association of Animal Behaviour Consultants, the Association of Animal Behaviour Professionals and the Parrot Society of Australia. Hello Kate, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Pure Animal Podcast. How are you today? I am really
1: well. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, it's a topic which is, I think, very important for our veterinary practitioners and nurses to know about, and that's aggressive pets in clinics um, and in a clinic situation. And I know this is um, a topic that's that's quite um, a specialty of yours, so I'm really excited to hear all your knowledge and your expertise on it. But before we jump into the topic of the day, are you able to share with us? listeners um, a bit of your background, um, how you actually came into the field of animal behaviour and where that interest started. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, it all began back when I was about
1: 14 years old after we brought home a new um, blue healer puppy. Mm -hmm. So, this was a family pet. Uh, I took him off to the local community-based training organisation where back then it was mainly punishment-based training. So, using a choker chain to um, punish unwanted behaviour. Uh, and I really didn't like the feel of that method of training. And so I just started training him at home in the backyard, but using food, using okay. his food. Yeah. And um, it went so much better. He yeah. was learning really quickly. It was fun. And it really sparked my interest in um, animal behavior and yeah. how animals learn.
0: Yeah, oh, that's lovely. And and you were 14, you said, when you had him. Yes. Oh yes. wow, that's a really young age. Well, that's great. And your parents were happy for you to sort of take on the role of of chief dog trainer.
1: They they definitely were. Although, I, even though I had the best of intentions, one of the things I would teach him is um how to jump over hurdles. So he soon <laughs> learnt how to jump, jump over, over the, the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he did terrorize the posty for a little while there, but um otherwise it, yeah they were happy for me to train him and teach him good behavior oh, that's so, lovely. so that sparked my interest and um once I got to university and started studying zoology and and animal behavior or the behavior of animals living in the wild, I became absolutely fascinated with how the environment influences behaviour um and so that led me to study honours in zoology um, with a focus on animal behaviour. And then after that, uh, to pursue a PhD in dog behaviour specifically.
0: Wow. Okay. And then after you completed your PhD, is that when you started your training and behaviour practice in Melbourne? Um, No, I actually started that back in 2014
1: after I'd done a stint in a pet shop, a really, really bad pet shop that sold all kinds of different pets to whoever would buy them and people would come in and ask me for advice and information about animal behaviour and, you know, for all they knew I was just a girl behind the counter (laughs) in customer service but I actually had an interest and a bit of knowledge in that and so I really saw that there was a need for good, solid, um, sound, science-based advice about Mm. animal behaviour and training. And that's where Pets Behaving Badly began. So I combined um, building up the business with my PhD studies. Um, I graduated from my PhD in 2016 and now the business is full-time.
0: Wow, congratulations. Gosh, that must have been really busy doing a PhD and starting a <laughs> business at the same time. <laughs> it, it certainly was. And that's why it took me
1: a bit longer than it yeah. should have to get that PhD finished. Yeah, but, that's um, fair. We enough. got there
0: in the end. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, congratulations. That's um, that's an amazing journey. And it's wonderful now that you're able to just focus um, solely on the business and <laughs> your studies are largely behind you. Um, they are for now. Yes. <laughs> for now. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Most <laughs> People yeah. have that kind of thirst to keep learning, don't they? <laughs> uh,
1: you're so right. Yes. So, and I find this a lot with my colleagues and, and um, people in a similar line of work that I'm in, is that the more you know, the more you realise you don't know and it kind of sucks you in. You, you do become a lifelong learner and kind mm. of ad- addicted to the, you know, seeking new knowledge. Yeah.
0: I get you. I'm a fellow sufferer.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I totally get you. Um, and for pets behaving badly, the the practice in Melbourne. What sort of services do you offer to your customer, your clients?
1: So, um, uh, one of the main um, services is in-home behaviour consultations for pet owners. Mm-hmm. So, I see mainly dogs and cats, but also parrots here and there. Okay. Uh, Yeah, companion parrots. Um, And so, the people that come to me are people who are experiencing behavioural difficulties with their pets um, and are seeking advice on how to manage and resolve those. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also do a lot of work with local councils. So, I'm an expert witness in uh, dangerous and menacing dog cases. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I do temperament assessments and reports and sometimes have to speak to those in um, VCAT or court hearings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I do a lot of uh, training for people who work with animals. So seminars, workshops, um, that kind of thing on animal behaviour and training. Um, Yeah, so they're the main services. But I also do a bit of um, writing, so blog posts and articles and things, um, all about animal behaviour to try and educate the... um,
0: community yeah oh that's great and it's um it's really important for people to know where to go to get that you know evidence-based scientific education and that high quality education for something as important as animal behavior we know that um just making you know small little mistakes over time can really start to sort of lead the animal down the wrong path so it's important to get it right for sure
1: it is and and unfortunately there is um you know these old myths and philosophies around how you train dogs and interact mm. with them like being the pack leader yeah. or dominance based training they're so outdated and and they've they've been proven wrong but people it's hard for the, the science to get out there to educate enough people to change what they do, and, and those methods can be really detrimental yeah. um, in terms of uh, contributing to aggression but also damaging the relationship people have with their animals.
0: Yeah, it's kind of sad, actually, that um, so many dogs are still having to succumb to those sort of more punished based punishment-based methods. Um, hopefully the the seeds of change are upon us and we can start to um, build more education around the right way to do things which is yeah. why I like having people like you on the podcast so we can try oh. and get the message out there <laughs> yeah
1: absolutely I think things are changing it's just not happening as quick as we would yeah. like
0: okay and so in your world which is animal behavior you did mention that you work mainly with dogs cats and parrots within that what, what are your sort of main interests like what cases really light you up Oh i um I love it all like
1: <laughs> i I just I get to work the people who engage me to help them they're they're just the best people they you know their pets are considered members of their family, they have the highest concern for their well being um and so they're really invested in in helping their pet and so yeah, I mean, I get a range of things aggression is a common one, mm. um separation anxiety, especially in dogs. Uh, inappropriate toileting in cats is the most common problem um but i also get people who've introduced a new pet into the home but um the relationships between the existing pet and the new pet are not working very well like in multi-cat homes or in dog only homes where a new cats come in um so it's really varied and really interesting and um yeah i don't really have a favorite issue that i address i i just like um being able to educate owners and help them to resolve problem behaviour.
0: And it must be so rewarding a lot of the time when you see that relationship really blossom and the pet, you know, become so much more relaxed and comfortable and the owner's really seeing the results and it just sort of eggs them on to keep going. It does. That, that's such a perfect description of what
1: happens. <laughs> it does. I mean, when, when the owners follow through and, um, and you know, implement all the recommendations and they do the work, the, the results they get are amazing. Yeah. And, and seeing the difference that that makes, not only for the pet owner, but also for the pet is incredibly rewarding.
0: And it really is up to them. I mean, y- you can guide them as, as much as possible, but how do you sort of Ensure that people are really on board and they're really committed, and they're going to adhere to your treatment recommendations and um, training plans at home, so they can get those really good results. Is there sort of any tips that you have there? Uh, yes. So <laughs> I
1: um, I make sure from the onset that they understand that there's no quick fix. You know, I don't come in wave a wand and woohoo, mm-hmm. the problem's gone. I make I explain very clearly how it works and and what is what is required of them to make. Um, uh, permanent changes occur and so they understand that even before I come to do the consultation but once I'm there I I demonstrate how the training techniques and and the science of behaviour works um, based on the knowledge that we have right now and and they can see it happen before their eyes and it's it's really cool when you get to see that moment that kind of light Flicks on in their brain and they see how they can apply the techniques. And then I get them to do it themselves because they're the ones who are going to have to work on the problem with their pet. And so once they see that they can do it, it really encourages them to keep doing the
0: work and, mm. um, yeah, move forward. Oh, that, that's a, a nice kind of reward-based motivation for people to keep going. Yes, When exactly. they're seeing their results firsthand. I'd really love now to jump into our sort of podcast topic today, which is about aggression, um, a very important um Issue, I guess you could call it, and common situation seen in vet clinics. Certainly, I was in clinics for five years um, before I moved over to work out of clinics, and I I was pretty lucky during my time, um, say lucky or maybe a bit self protective, not to have any bad injuries. But I certainly know of colleagues who have ended up having some pretty nasty cat bites and um, dog bites and needing treatment for that. Um, so it's, it's obviously something that is quite a common situation in certain clinics um, and for certain pets. W- why, in your opinion, do dogs and cats display aggression um, even if they're not an aggressive pet at home, which I heard uh-huh. so commonly? Why, uh-huh. why do you find that when they get into that clinic situation they start to display that aggression?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so the reason that they do it in 99% of cases is due to fear and anxiety. Mm. Uh, and this is either because of a lack of prior positive experiences associated with vet clinics, um, mm-hmm. especially during um, the first year of life. Uh, and that is common in rescue dogs that maybe, you know, they weren't vetted Um Yep. Because the owner couldn't afford it or didn't didn't want to spend the money doing it. Uh, and then as an adult, they end up in a vet clinic for the first time and they've got no prior understanding of what that is. Okay. Um, or it occurs because of unpleasant past experiences associated with the vet clinic. So despite the vets and vet nurses and staff's best efforts to make it a positive experience, sometimes animals experience pain, yeah. um, trauma, separation from um, attachment bonds, um, you know, they can experience unpleasant things in that setting. And so they remember. And so the next time they're there, they use aggression to try and create distance between themselves and a perceived threat. Mm-hmm. So that's often a vet nurse or a veterinarian who's trying to administer um, a vaccination or take a temperature or just do a body check. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, the animals learn that aggression works because when they uh, have a go, a bite, try to bite, um, we immediately move our hand yes. away and we back away. Yes, <laughs> instant reward. To, yes, yes, for the animal, it's <laughs> a yeah. reward and for us, it's self-preservation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it's aggression is one of those things that, you know, in a vet clinic environment, the vet has a, a set number of, you know, a set amount of time that they're yeah. able to do their job. And that's not always conducive to how an animal is feeling in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it is a very common issue that I help people with, Mm -hmm. um, people that have pets that are aggressive and fearful at the vet.
0: Okay. So do you work mostly with the pet owners on this issue or do you actually work directly with practitioners or the practice staff as a team on how to manage um, aggressive animals or a bit of both?
1: So, it's a bit of both. So, typically, um, I work mainly with the client, but uh, I will also work in conjunction with the veterinary clinic Mm -hmm. um, because often we develop a plan to desensitise and counter-condition an animal to the vet clinic, and that is a team effort. So, it's not just the owner who's got to do the work, but it's also making sure that the veterinary staff are aware of what to do or what's happening to help that animal succeed in that environment. Um, but also, uh, I've recently started um, a collaboration with two of my very good friends and colleagues called People and Animals in the Workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an organisation that provides professional development to um, people who work with animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this year, our event is for the veterinary industry. And as it has it, I'm actually speaking about this issue <laughs> at our next right. event. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, in terms of that, Now we are starting to provide that kind of advice um, and education to veterinary staff, so Mm -hmm. vets, vet nurses and people that deal with animals in that setting to help them understand what's going on and how to deal with animals in that situation to help them cope better.
0: Yeah, gosh, that would have just been a godsend for me and I know my colleagues when I was in practice because I – confess I am really scared of cats. (laughs) Uh I'd much prefer to deal with a 700 kilo horse than a cat Uh Um, and Uh it's probably because I've never had a cat as a pet. Um, So I just found it really difficult to read their body language and it took me probably two or three years of learning off other people what they were telling me, these cats, And, and, um, and I was the very first person to say Okay, I need someone who's better at dealing with cats because I used to find that cats could read my fear Mm -hmm. and it would almost make the situation worse, sort of more tense, Um, which is a nice segue into um, just wondering if you can actually go through you know, some more practical information and, um, some of the behaviors and body language you might look for in cats. I think dogs, well, I used to find dogs a little easier to read because it's a little more obvious sometimes. Um, but, but what, what are the sort of behaviors that maybe give us a warning that they're feeling fearful or anxious and possibly that they might use aggression to, um, protect themselves in that situation?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's a really good question, and a lot of people don't realize that, uh, like overt or really obvious aggression, like a bite or a scratch or something like that, is is actually the animal's last resort. Yeah. So they tend to show a whole lot of much more subtle body language signals to show that they're stressed or anxious or frightened. But we tend to don't we we don't see them, or they're ignored, and the animal has to up the ante and resort to something more serious to get the desired outcome. Mm-hmm. So some of those more subtle signs, um, let's start with dogs. So um, wide eyes, so seeing the whites of the eyes, um, lip licking, so they'll flick mm. their, their tongue out and lick their lips when yep. they're feeling stressed. Yeah. Um, they might cower or crouch, um, not want to move forward, say, into the, um, the exam room. Yeah. Um, they might. Try and avoid um, the vet uh, or the vet nurses if they're trying to call them over. Um, what else will they do? Uh, they might have sweaty paws. Mm-hmm. So dogs that are stressed sweat through the paws. Mm-hmm. They might start panting. And, yeah. and then you kind of get up to the more serious growls um, and then a bite after that.
0: Those signs that you've described to me sound very, I mean, they're signs of anxiety. So uh-huh. really... I'm not going to sort of blanket label all, all anxious dogs as possibly becoming aggressive, but really any dog that is displaying those signs of fear and anxiety that you've just mentioned could potentially, if you don't know that dog, become aggressive at that last resort stage if they're yes. not feeling comfortable.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and not all dogs will resort to aggression. So when, when an animal's in a fight or flight response, um, they can either choose that fight option, so that's the aggression, mm-hmm. um, or they can just try and get away, yeah. constantly just try and get away. Yeah. Often when, when when they're in the clinic setting, they're on a lead, so their escape yeah. option is not there. Yeah, <laughs> So it, it tends to make them a bit more likely to, to use aggression if they feel they yeah. have no other option.
0: That makes sense. And I've also seen that in dogs in a park on a lead, that mm-hmm. they're o- often more likely to become aggressive towards another dog when they're on the lead than if they're Mm -hmm. not on the lead. And is it for those same reasons? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because they can't get away. So the only thing they can do is fight.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. but we tend to be really bad at reading dogs. You know, we yeah. assume
0: oh, the dogs love going
1: to the park and meeting other dogs. Yeah, but it's not always the case.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's pretty. You know, it's pretty overwhelming for them. It would be like you suddenly being thrown into a room with people that you've never met, and them coming yeah, and sniffing coming you.
1: Sniffing you, but <laughs> <dog> yeah, things. <laughs>
0: Just yeah. Rather they didn't. I'm pretty sure I would run the other way. <laughs> exactly.
1: I might not bite
0: someone, but I would certainly <laughs> try and flee. <laughs> um, okay, great. So, dogs, I, I feel pretty comfortable with those signs. Um, I've definitely seen most of those things. And, and, you know, before they sort of growl, sometimes the lip goes up and the yes. tail position and things like that. That's, um, you know, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty good at showing us how they're feeling. But what about cats? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, cats can be a lot harder to read. Mm. Um, often when they're really frightened or anxious, they tend to just shut down. So, you probably have seen cases where people bring their cat in in a cat carrier and you can't even get the cat out of the carrier. Totally. Or just, yeah. Yes, it doesn't want to come out. Um, and so, those situations are really difficult because you you need to get the cat out in order to give it a check. But that's just for that cat is making that experience so much worse because they've got no control, absolutely no control over what's happening to them or their environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the research tells us now is that Control, having control over one's actions and environment, is actually something that's considered a primary reinforcer or something that's really valued by animals. Mm. So, by trying to give them a little bit more control, we can ease that fear and anxiety a bit more. Right. Okay. So, so other signs in cats um, that they can get quite obvious. So, just not wanting to come out of the carrier. being quite still or crouching again they lip lick Mm -hmm. Um, their pupils might get really dilated the ears sort of get flat Mm -hmm. Um, you might see that pylo erection where the hair the fur becomes um you know stands on end um and then you know the noises they make like the the low level growls and (laughs) all Mm -hmm. of those things precede more serious aggression like scratching and biting
0: yeah oh gosh you've sort of giving me shivers just talking oh, about them. I'm sorry, you <laughs> <laughs> oh, No, yeah. it's fine. Um, <laughs> it just reminds me of times where I have had cats in carriers and had to put my hand in to try and uh-huh. get them out when they're behaving yeah. like that. And it's it's not nice for them and it's not nice no. for anyone. The owner usually is pretty stressed too. So yeah. not a happy situation. Um, okay. So what can we sort of do about this mm-hmm. then <laughs> for yep, dogs yep, and really cats? Obviously, <laughs> yep. probably different approach to both of them, I would say, but but share some similar, similarities. But because cats are usually in carriers and dogs are only, yep. Um, what are some practical ways that, well, I guess both owners and the staff in a clinic can can help them feel more at ease and prevent that aggressive outburst?
1: Yeah, sure. So what we want to do is start from the very beginning in an ideal situation. So as you've got a puppy or a kitten, we want to try and make the vet clinic environment as positive as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots of people only ever take their pet to the vet when they have to have an injection or a thermometer in the bar yeah. or they get desexed or yep. they've had an accident. Yeah. <laughs> and so every experience those animals have at the clinic is often a- associated with pain or discomfort or separation. So yeah. So it's, it's always an unpleasant thing. Yeah. Um, I have so many clients who tell me their dog hates getting in the car because they know that they're going to the vet yeah. and they're stressing out even before they're they're at the location. Yeah. Yeah. So, what we want to try and do to help those animals is try and build up much more of a positive association with going to the vet clinic. Um, And so, taking your pet there when they don't have an appointment and and pairing that environment. So, this process is called Mm desensitisation. So, we're desensitising the animal to the vet clinic environment um, and using counter-conditioning at the same time. So, counter-conditioning is where you change Um, A previous negative association to a positive one Mm -hmm. by pairing the environment with something the animal loves. Okay, so like giving treats and stuff. Yes, yeah. but not just any treats. The highest value treat. like <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> chocolate for dogs. But I mean, they can't yeah, chocolate. But for me, chocolate is super high value. I love chocolate. Yeah, yeah, it'll <laughs> <So, laughs>
0: drive you to do anything.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, what we do over time and with repetition is teach the animal that when you're here, good stuff happens. Mm. Um, if the if the pet likes particular toys or likes attention from people. Anything you can do to make that environment associated with positive things is going to help reduce the um, negative associations that that animal has Mm -hmm. and at at the same time reduce their fear and anxiety associated with that environment.
0: How how sort of many visits roughly, I mean I know every animal is obviously very individual and different, but how long might this take to try and establish that positive association?
1: Yeah, so it's it's you're right, every animal is an individual and it's kind of like, well, how long a piece of string? Yeah. It, it depends on the individual animal, on their prior experiences at the vet um, and how severe their level of fear or anxiety is. Mm-hmm. Um, some animals, no matter what you do um, you know, at the vets, what happens to them, they recover really well and they're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, others, the way that they perceive those events affects them a bit more and so they're more fearful and anxious. So, mm-hmm. it's the ones that already have quite a high level of fear and anxiety, it takes a lot longer with those animals and a lot more repetition. Yeah. So, you know, with an animal with severe fear and anxiety, I'd probably be doing a couple of trips a week if you could. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's important that you know the steps to take and um, sometimes consulting a professional will ensure that you are on the right track and that you're not accidentally doing the wrong thing yeah. and making the problem worse. Yeah, so important. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay. And so um, on one of these friendly visits to the vet, do you encourage the veterinary staff to get involved at that stage um, and them give treats and pats and things, or is it really just the owner that's the one who's sort of creating that positive experience?
1: Yep. So at the start, we want to make it as um, um, unintimidating for the animal as possible. So at the start, we would have just the owner who the animal's really comfortable with because they already have a very strong relationship with that owner. Mm-hmm. So once the animal is um, more comfortable in that setting with the owner, then we would start to introduce the staff and and perhaps so maybe the um, receptionist or practice manager and vet nurses and then the vet. So we want to kind mm-hmm. of increase the level of um, exposure or or fear eliciting stimuli, but gradually and only if the animal's coping at the previous step.
0: Okay. And something that's just come into my mind, if you've got a puppy that hasn't had any prior experience out of vet at all, how do you sort of step get them on the right track at the start? Is it um, I mean do you, do you actually encourage people to do their puppy preschool out of vet clinic for these reasons to try and create that sort of positive? association or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or do these regular visits and just have, you know, nice, you know, walk in, give them a treat, give them a pat and then walk out um, from that early stage.
1: So either of those is fine. Mm -hmm. The the main thing is that the puppy is going to the vet clinic, having lots of positive experiences so that the positive experiences outweigh the negative Mm -hmm. because the pup's going to have to go and have injections. Some cope better with that, than others, um, they'll have to go and get de-sexed. They may have to have operations down the track. Mm-hmm. So the more um, that that dog learns that going to the vet is a good thing and out, that helps outweigh the negative experiences, then that's going to make it less likely to use aggression and to reach that level of fear where it would need to use aggression.
0: And what about cats? I mean, I know even for a cat leaving their home and being in a carrier, can be a huge source of stress, let alone going into a vet clinic. So when you're trying to desensitise a cat to a vet clinic, how can you do that if they're not really food motivated or um, is it it sounds a little bit more difficult for cats? (laughs) So it is a little bit more difficult and only in the sense that
1: Dogs have evolved with us for thousands of years, yeah. and just to want to be with us and please
0: us. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah,
1: they're much more easier to train. Cats are just as trainable, but you need to use what we call reinforces, or another word for rewards. Um, you need to use reinforces that the cat actually values. Yeah. So so. I know you said cats aren't food motivated, but they are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just that when we're trying to train them, often they're too fearful and anxious to care yeah. about food. Yeah, So So we want to, with cats, what, what we would do is start with the training at home. Start with getting mm-hmm. them used to the carrier, so they get fed in the carrier, they get their most favourite treats in the carrier, they get toys in the carrier, they get all the good stuff in the carrier. Once that's happened for a period of time um, and they love being in the carrier and you would start with it stationary and then start moving it with them in it for a little bit and then pop it in the car. So there are a number of stages that you progress through Mm -hmm. and you would then start to take them to the vet clinic once they're happy being in the carrier and going in the car.
0: Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And starting from kitten would be important here as well, if you can.
1: Absolutely, yes, because kittens and puppies go through uh, the critical period for socialisation where they're most open to new experiences. So the more we can get them used to travelling in the car, for example, being in the carrier, going to the vet, even when they don't have an appointment, um, and creating positive associations with those things, they're way less likely to fear them.
0: What about in a situation where the pet? Unfortunately, didn't have a positive association with the clinic and was already in the clinic and was feeling anxious and looked p- perhaps that it was maybe going to move towards aggression. What about in that situation, what's the best thing for an owner and staff member to do to sort of, you know, immediately alleviate um, or try to alleviate that that fear and aggression and uh, that fear and anxiety before it leads to aggression. Is there something kind of on the spot which you would recommend? Yeah, it's difficult and yeah. um,
1: it's a very common situation in
0: yeah. Lots, lots of adopted dogs that may
1: not have had a good start to life, yeah. same with cats that have not had any or many positive experiences at the clinic. Um, I would always recommend to people that if they can avoid going to the vet um, when their dog is highly fearful or anxious, um, until they're able to work on it, that is good. But if you have to, and sometimes this happens, you want to try and make it um, as less, um, yeah. You want to try and make it as positive as possible. Have whatever needs to be done done um, as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, things so safety is really important because sometimes yeah. dogs will need things done to them um, in a limited time frame because that's just what needs to be done. So um, muzzles can be. Yeah. Uh, helpful in that situation, so can um, covering a dog like in a heavy blanket to help restrict its movement and so it doesn't have any visual of what's going on if an injection needs to be given or something has to happen. Um, But in an ideal situation, we would only progress um, through the examination if the dog is coping or the animal is coping well. Food helps a lot. Yeah. and really high value foods, so cooked chicken. Um, Devon works pretty well. Yeah. Some dogs love cheese. Yeah, the more of those sorts of things that they're getting during throughout the whole experience, it helps to um, alleviate some of the unpleasant experiences that they might have. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. but sometimes it's um unavoidable, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So I'm just thinking. I mean, in a consult situation, when you've got the owner there you would probably be asking the owner to do most of the handling with the dog because they're more comfortable with the owner. So I know I've had owners put on muzzles and things before because uh-huh. the dog is much more comfortable with that. But back of house, perhaps if a if a pet um, has been dropped off for the day for an anaesthetic and you can't really use food before an anaesthetic, um, in that situation, would you um, just try and do your best to stay quiet and calm and protect yourself and make sure that you're not triggering the pet too much, but obviously you sort of have to get things done.
1: Yes. Yeah. You just, you just have to do your best in yeah. that situation.
0: Okay. So I guess we've sort of touched on this a bit, but what are some ways, I know, um, I don't know a huge amount about it, but I have attended a couple of lectures on fear-free clinics, um, mm-hmm. certainly becoming um more and more common here, but I know in America it's quite common as well. I mean, I'm not not saying using the principles of that, but along those sort of same lines, um, how can a vet clinic as a whole introduce kind of policies and different protocols to try and make the environment nicer for pets and reduce those triggers for fear? in in a sort of broader sense?
1: Sure. So even just doing things like um, ensuring all cats come into the clinic in a carrier with a cover over the carrier, because even though they're in the carrier, they can still see outside and they might be seeing other cats or dogs in the waiting room that's contributing to their fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So even having that covered um, for animals that do have fear and anxiety uh, with vet visits, making sure that you book those clients in when it's not busy so there's not a whole lot of other people or animals around. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess just learning uh, if the staff aren't already aware of how to read and respond to body language, getting some professional development around that so that they understand how to read uh, dogs and cats and how to respond to their body language to help them feel a bit more relaxed in
0: that environment. And what about kind of moving towards like the, the surgery area or the treatment room area. Are there things, obviously animals are quite often all housed together in that area and it can, you know, it certainly can be a bit noisy and busy. Would you recommend covering the animal's cages individually so that they have a bit of darkness and a bit of peace and quiet? Um, separating dogs and cats obviously would be ideal, but in some clinics it's just not possible. Are there some, some strategies that clinics can do in that treatment area
1: yes so covering the cage is an excellent one yeah. so the, the more kind of privacy an animal has and and less visual access to things that are going on like people going past or other animals that might be in the same location that can help them feel a little less stressed mm-hmm. um other things that can help is giving them uh treats and and food when they're allowed to have it mm-hmm. what while they're there, so in that situation, yeah, um, and getting to know the animals. So, if if you know you've got certain animals there that love um, a pat or attention or, um certain toys that they're allowed to have, those things can also help to make it more of a positive experience for them.
0: Again, I always say this when I'm on the podcast, I wish I'd done all these podcasts before when I was in practice because I would learn so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's okay. Hopefully um, our listeners will be learning a lot. Okay, so we've we've covered a lot of really helpful practical tips. Is there anything else that you feel is really important to share? Um, perhaps, you know, um, things that we haven't covered that maybe you're covering in your upcoming talk about this topic? Um, I guess the main thing to think about
1: uh, is that, you know, animals, we tend to take it personally sometimes when an animal is aggressive towards us. Um, and we don't necessarily know their, their past experiences and their perspective. Um, you know, I have heard every now and then a uh, clients calling me in tears because their, their vet has told them how aggressive their dog yeah. is and they are putting it to sleep and, and the, the owner can't understand because the dog they know is not that dog. Yeah. Um, you know, the dog's great that happens at home. L-
0: happened a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so I
1: suppose for vets to understand that um, it's not that the dog is inherent, inherently aggressive, it's that it's just not coping in that situation. Yeah. So whether it's because the dog has perceived unpleasant experiences in the past, and, and that could be something as small to us as just having an injection or or just being handled and checked when the dog didn't really want to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it doesn't have to be anything big. Um, but the animal is just doing what it feels it needs to do in that situation to feel safe and okay.
0: I, I'm just wondering... We're going a little off topic, but not really. I was just wondering what your opinion would be. Um, I remember when I was uh, probably a new graduate, a puppy came in for its first vaccination. So it was a 10-week-old puppy, second vaccination, but first vaccination in a vet clinic. And it was incredibly aggressive at this stage. And it had never been in a clinic before. And um, really, neither me or any other staff member could get really anywhere near it. And that's the only time I have ever been really badly bitten, <laughs> which was oh, that, you that tiny little poodle puppy. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a possibility that some pets are, are born and they already have this aggressiveness inherently um, in them? <laughs> is that or is it always, does it always develop um, out of fear and anxiety?
1: Um, really good question. So, mm-hmm. so behaviour is a combination of genetic predispositions, but also past experience and the current environment. So, I mean, we're even learning there's this fascinating field called epigenetics, yeah, which which is finding that, um, you know, your life experience, the things that you experience in your life, um, the situations and events can actually switch genes on and off. Um, so, a puppy may have a predisposition for aggression because. One or two of their, or both of their parents, were more aggressive than the average dog, but it's usually the past experiences that contribute to this as well. So I would say that puppy maybe hadn't been handled very much until yeah. it came to be checked at the vet. Um, but there's a possibility that one or both of its parents had a yeah genetic predisposition um, for aggression too.
0: And for pets like that that do have that genetic predisposition. Do you feel that in most cases that they, with the right handling and training and time, that they can, you know, thinking of epigenetics, that those genes can sort of be switched off?
1: Yes, yes. So I, I yeah, I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head meeting, uh, working with an aggressive dog or puppy that, that could not be improved and managed mm-hmm. yeah. um, significantly. So, yeah, I mean, that, that puppy was just responding to what was happening at that time mm-hmm. um it may not have been aggressive in other situations mm-hmm. um so for example at home with the family um yeah there are lots of different factors yeah. that come into it yeah but, but learning is continu- you know learning happens all the time so if we can teach that puppy that the vet clinic can be a really positive um, place and experience then that negates its need to use aggression
0: okay it, it actually, once you sort of break it down, it actually is quite simple, the approach. Um, it's just really, it's it's really sort of changing the mindset of of pet owners and clinic staff um, of that time factor. And I know that that, you know, so often people will come um, for a vaccination or something like that. And, and if we're really treating the animal with respect, um, as you're saying, and if they're they're not okay with being there and they're not even okay with the exam, perhaps discuss discontinuing the the consult and coming back another day or doing some work to improve that positive relationship with the clinic situation before moving towards that you know maybe pain inducing treatment so i know there'll be a lot of pet owners who are frustrated with that because they're so time poor and they just want it done and they you know, kind of just need to tick that box and move on. Um, and also from the clinic point of view, you know, it's really important to educate clinic staff, which you're obviously doing a really good job of, to to realise that it's not just that one day that's, you know, important to tick off. It's actually, it could be really detrimental if they have that one bad experience. It could actually set them up on that path to have that negative association with the clinic long term, which then would lead to needing to do more intervention later on and things getting worse. So I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm guess i rambling a bit, but in my mind, I, I just hope that people realise that, you know, every interaction with a vet clinic is really important to get right if they're wanting to set their animal up up for success and to have that happy time there um and so if it's not the right day and it's and things aren't going well then discontinue and think of the animal first and don't try and sort of rush things and just tick those boxes
1: yeah i I could not agree with you more on that sarah Mm. and um, you know even um thinking about ways that um, vet clinics can deal with animals um that are fearful and anxious even having like um uh, like like a program for those animals, so that clients can book in to do sessions um, yeah. with the staff to to make it more of a positive experience. Because yeah. you're right, a lot of people will not take their animals back to a clinic. If if they're showing high levels of aggression and it's stressful for them, they might go somewhere else, or they might try and get someone to come to their house. So it's definitely in the clinic's interest to um, work with these clients um, to maintain a long-term relationship.
0: And um, obviously, for some of these pets, you just reminded me of um, the option of house calls. That might be a nice kind of interim way to try and get a pet used to perhaps having a stranger handling them, and Maybe giving an injection, but in their home setting, and then you can use that to build up to going to a clinic and having that same treatment and handling yes. done there. Yeah. So yeah, is absolutely. that something you recommend quite often as yes. well? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes, it is when, um, particularly when you've got really aggressive animals and they need um, veterinary care. Yeah. Um, often they'll tolerate it much better in the home environment because it's safe, it's familiar. Um, yeah. And. I often cope a lot better
0: well excellent I've really enjoyed talking to you about this topic um, is there anything else that you feel like we need to touch on or are you fairly confident that we've given everyone a good overview I, I certainly feel like we have
1: <laughs> yeah I, I do too I think that sounds great I guess the last thing that I would just point out if that's okay yeah of course. Um, is' just to reiterate and and, and let people know that um, animal behaviour is driven by consequences. Mm-hmm. So animals repeat behaviours that have a desired outcome for them based on their past experiences um, and prior learning. So any behaviour that maintains or increases in frequency, the reason for that is the animal gets something from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that means is that we can modify behaviour by providing high-value beneficial consequences for behaviour we want to see more of. Um, so this is what I'm talking about um, in one of my talks at mm-hmm. this event that we're running for vets and yep. vet nurses um, is to teach them how to get behaviour they want by um, uh, reinforcing those behaviours that they're looking for, so calm, compliant Behavior you yep. can you can teach animals to do what you want them to do um, just by using the science behavior. So I always like, always like to um include that.
0: Yeah, no, it's important to know, and it really comes down to that. You know, the fundamentals of of the way animals learn um, mm-hmm. and understanding that and working with that rather than against it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kate, before we say goodbye, are you able to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and Pets Behaving Badly and perhaps your website and um, contact details? Yeah, absolutely. So people can find me on my website, which is Mm -hmm. petsbehavingbadly.com.au.
1: You can also find me on Facebook, Pets Behaving Badly, Solutions with Dr. Kate, Mm -hmm. or on Instagram, Pet Behaviourist. Um, Or People and Animals in the Workplace, if you're interested to know more about um, professional development and workplace training,
0: it's peopleandanimalsintheworkplace.com. Fantastic. There's a lot of good resources there for people to go to. (laughs) Um, Well, thanks again, Kate. I really enjoyed discussing this important topic with you and I hope that when people listen to this that there's going to be more animals out there who are treated the way that they should be with respect and patience and hopefully with the work that you're doing and getting the word out there we can start to change the way things are done in clinics. Uh, yeah that's uh, that's the that's the goal yeah. so I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah. So, um, thank you so much for having me Sarah. Oh it's a pleasure Kate you have a good day. You too. I'm Dr Sarah Howard and this was the Pure Animal Podcast. If you liked this episode, please jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.